There's a scene in the Chronicles of Narnia at the very end, at the end of the last battle, where the kids, Peter, Edmund, and Lucy, are involved in a railway accident and they die. They experience the D word, death. They die in a train wreck. And they find themselves in the final Narnia, heaven, if you will, But they don't know yet that they actually are in the final Narnia. And as Aslan, the great lion who represents Jesus, as he appears to them, this is how it goes down. Aslan turned to them and said, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. And Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. And you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? And their hearts leaped, and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, Aslan said softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. So they were home in Narnia, but they didn't know it yet. Aslan told them the term was over, meaning school was out and the summer holidays had begun. In other words, it's summer vacation. No more school. Joy. Freedom, that's the wish of every kid, isn't it? The last day of school and the first day of summer vacation. And that's a picture of Easter. Resurrection is the final Narnia where our hearts leap and a wild hope rises within and takes over. Resurrection is Easter morning for eternity. Resurrection means that school's out and it's summertime. Easter means that summer vacation is coming. Easter means that one day, everything that a child thinks about all year, the last day of school, will finally be here. The dream will be over. It will be the joy of Easter morning and the excitement of Christmas morning, and the freedom of the first day of summer, every single day, forever and ever and ever. Imagine that, the the joy of, of Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday, and the excitement of Christmas morning, and the joy of it's the last day of school. That will be every day on the new earth with Jesus forever. But to get there, We must go through death. We must all go through the D word. So we're going to go through the D word today in our sermon to get to the empty tomb. But it's going to be dark for a while until we get there. We must all go through the D word. Unless we are alive when Jesus returns, we all have a date with death. It's in the calendar. No getting around it. But if we are trusting in Jesus, then the inevitable, you can run, but you can't hide D-word, 
will not have the last word over our lives. And so Easter means that the D word does not get the last word. Death. The D word does not get the last word for those who trust in Jesus. Because Easter is true, death will not get the last word in our life. Resurrection will. And so Narnia awaits us where we will just keep going further up and further into God's love, further up and further into the riches of His grace forever and ever. Forever, ever? Yes. Forever, ever? Yes. So open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5. We're still in this chapter. Last verse, even on Easter. Listen, I can get to the cross from any passage, okay? But the verse we're looking at today makes it really, really easy. And what we'll see in this one verse today is that the only way that we can get to Narnia, the only way we can get to heaven, the only way we can get to life on the new earth is through the very bloody and gruesome and gory death of Jesus on the cross. So 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 21, hear the word of the Lord and let's sit under the authority of God's word this morning. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me read it again. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, that's Easter in three words, for our sake. Wow. How do you spell Easter? For our sake. That's how you spell Easter. On the cross, God made Jesus to be sin for our sake. I'm dumbfounded. If you could take those three words and you could just kind of squeeze them and, and wring them out, the loving kindness of God would just ooze out. The mercy of God would get squeezed out. The grace of God would just start dripping out all over the place. Paul is telling us in verse 21 that on the cross, the sinless one was made sin for the sinful. We know Jesus was without sin. God's word tells us that. He knew no sin. He was righteous. He was blameless. And yet, God placed all of our sin on him. Sometimes I think we're just too comfortable with that truth. We're just too comfortable with the cross. It doesn't shock us anymore. It doesn't startle us as much as it should. Let me ask you, when's the last time you were good and shocked that Jesus died for your sin? I mean, really good and shocked, like, oh my God, I can't believe it. When's the last time you were good and shocked that Jesus died for your sin? I'm afraid the shock of Easter may have worn off for some of us. We approach Easter the way we do our lunch on a random Thursday. It's just like some random lunch 
that we eat on some random Thursday in October. It's just a ham sandwich and some potato chips. Nothing too exciting. May the Holy Spirit open our eyes right now. Oh, Holy Spirit, open our eyes right now so that we're shocked once again that God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. May the Spirit of God tattoo verse 21 on our hearts this morning. It takes a miracle for that to happen, by the way. It takes a miracle by the Holy Spirit for frequent churchgoers who are all too familiar with the Easter story to be shocked once again by the cross. Think about it. Our guilt was transferred to Jesus. And he really was treated as if he had done all the bad things that we do. Here's how the late, great uh, British preacher Charles Spurgeon described it. He said, Jesus Christ was made by his father sin for us. That is, he was treated as if he had himself been sin. He was not sin. He was not sinful. He was not guilty, but... He was treated by his father as if he had not only been sinful, but as if he had been sin itself. Not only has he made him to be the substitute for sin, but to be sin. God looked on Christ as if Christ had been sin, not as if he had taken up the sins of his people or as if they were laid on him, though that were true, but as if he himself had positively been that noxious, that God-hating, that soul-damning thing called sin. When the judge of all the earth said, where is sin? Christ presented himself. Wow, think about that. When God said, where is sin? Where's sin? Sin, where are you? Jesus stepped up and said, Here I am. Send me to the cross. He became that noxious, God-hating, soul-damning thing called sin for us. That means that 2 Corinthians 5.21, though not spelled out in detail, is one of the most frightening and hideous verses in the Bible. God made him to be sin. When you read that verse, you should get chills. When you read that verse, the hair on the back of your neck should stand up. When you read verse 21, there should be some ominous music playing. A fog should roll in off the moonlit lake. A John Carpenter-inspired eerie movie score in some minor key should be playing on a synthesizer as you read verse 21. No Hollywood horror movie can compare with the horror of these words with what Jesus experienced at the cross. And so verse 21 is one of the most hideous and frightening and alarming and terrifying and petrifying and hair-raising and spine-tingling and blood-curdling bone-chilling, horrifying, nerve-wracking, fearsome, unnerving, and eerie verses in the Bible. No Hollywood horror movie can capture the horror of what happened in verse 21. No haunted house can compare with what Jesus endured on the cross. 
No Halloween store can stock up enough scary monsters and creatures to compare with what Jesus experienced on the cross at Calvary. And if we could really see it and grasp it and understand it all, understand what it means that God made Jesus to be sin, it would scare the living daylights out of us. We'd be shaking in our boots. Why? Because on the cross, a holy God poured out his holy wrath against our noxious sins on his own son. God's wrath is holy. It means it's different. His his wrath against sin, his, his wrath and anger is not like our anger. Our anger is out of control. His wrath is not out of control. God's wrath is his settled antagonism to evil. It's his unwillingness to compromise with evil. And Jesus volunteered to face that head on for us. And so what Jesus endured on the cross is scarier than anything you might experience in a haunted house. What Jesus endured as he died for our sins is scarier than any 80s horror movie monster that has ever graced the screen. Like the horror brothers Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th. Bet you didn't think I was going to mention him on Easter Sunday, did you? Maybe I'm the only pastor that's going to mention Freddy Krueger from A Nightmare on Elm Street or Michael Myers from Halloween. None of those guys are anywhere near as scary as what Jesus faced as he bore the penalty for our sin on the cross. As he faced the holy wrath of God head on. R.C. Sproul described this scene of Jesus bearing our sins and crying out in agony as the most grotesque display of ugliness imaginable. This cry represents the most agonizing protest ever uttered on this planet. It burst forth in a moment of unparalleled pain. It is the scream of the damned for us. That's... 2 Corinthians 5.21 in a nutshell, the most grotesque display of ugliness imaginable, the scream of the damned for us, for our sake. And it happened. It happened because God loves sinners. It happened because of his love and his mercy and his kindness, how much he loves you. So why does Jesus cry out the scream of the damned? So that you and I will never have to. He was damned. He was condemned by a holy God for your sin and my sin. And he cried out in agony so that you and I will never have to. We have all sinned enough in the past 24 hours, the past two hours, dare I say maybe even the past two minutes to deserve a cross, death, and eternity in hell. And God would be just and right to pour his holy and righteous anger out on all of us. But instead, this is how good he is, he offers amnesty. He offers his son for our sin. 
In that darkness on the cross, Jesus made himself one with us in our sinful humanity. He accepted responsibility for our guilt. He stepped into our shoes. He bore in his own innocent person the condemnation that we all deserve so that we could be justified, so that we could be declared righteous in God's eyes. As Article 21 of the Belgic Confession states, he paid back what he had not stolen. He paid back what he had not stolen. And he repaid it through the darkness of what transpired on the cross. We cannot even begin to imagine the horror that Jesus felt as the sin of his people was placed on him. It's why he struggled in the garden and said, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. But as we try to take in the horror of the cross, we can never forget that everything that we're talking about this morning is highly offensive. Did you know that Easter weekend is very offensive to some people? 2 Corinthians 5.21 is very offensive. One of the most offensive verses in the Bible. Now you may ask, how can Easter be offensive? It's lots of pastel colors and everybody dressed up in their Easter best. And there's bunny rabbits and little chicks and Easter egg hunts and Easter baskets. And nowadays, any flavor of marshmallow peeps that your heart desires. Right? They just keep coming out with more and more every year. How can all that Easter cuteness and goodness be considered offensive? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's why Easter is offensive. Because it answers the question Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to experience the D word? That's why Easter, that's why the gospel is offensive. Because it answers the most important question of all. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to experience the D word? And the answer to that question is offensive to many people. Even some church people. Sin, which we all inherited from Adam, isn't just us breaking a few isolated commandments like lying or stealing or coveting. Sin is this proud refusal to acknowledge our dependence on God, on our Creator. That's what Adam and Eve did. They were saying, it doesn't matter what God says, we're going to do what we want to do. That's sin. Sin is making a bid for your own autonomy where you are the king and queen of your little world. It's rebellion against a very good God, a very loving God, a very merciful God, a very kind God, a very generous and giving God. Did you know that the devil, that evil serpent, used the D word when tempting Adam and Eve? Listen to this familiar verse and see if you can catch the devil using the D word. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and 4. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, 
you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. There it is. There's the D word. You will not surely die. If you disobey God, you're not going to die. The devil told Adam and Eve that they wouldn't die, that they wouldn't have to experience the D word. But did you catch what the devil's first lie was? He was basically saying, God won't judge you for your sin. God won't judge you for your sin. The devil was denying what many pastors and churches deny these days. Judgment. It's the devil's first, the very first, and that's very telling, isn't it? It's the devil's very first and oldest lie. God will not judge you. And that kind of thinking is rampant in churches these days. D.A. Carson said, there is a heaven to gain and a hell to fear. And if you don't believe that, get out of ministry. There are so many pastors today, so many churches that deny that there is a hell to fear and that every one of us must stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, for believers, we know we're already judged with Jesus at the cross. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of God and be vindicated and publicly proclaimed, this one belongs to me, forgiven, I can't remember their sins. That's true for the Christian. But there are so many pastors and churches today, it's like, no one's going to stand before God and be judged. There's no such thing as hell. And I think D.A. Carson is right. If you think that, get out of the ministry. There is a hell to fear because the talking snake showed up in the garden with our first parents and he started asking them questions. And the first noxious lie that that talking snake said after asking Adam and Eve a question, that first noxious lie was this, God will not judge you. You will not experience the D word. And so understand this, Grace. This is how bad we are. This is how sinful we are. This is how offensive to God we are apart from Jesus. Okay? It literally, this is how bad we are. It literally took the sinless son of God dying for us. His life and death is the only thing that could save us. That's how far gone we are. But if you can stomach the fact that you are a sinner and that you desperately need a Savior, then the gospel becomes good news. But it's a stumbling block to the world, isn't it? They don't get it. They don't understand our obsession with, they don't understand our fascination with a bloody Savior. Even some church people don't get it or like it. And so even in some churches, the argument is, but people are good. I'm a good person. I love what R.C. Sproul said about that. Why do bad things happen to good people? That only happened once and he volunteered. No one is good. The only person who was ever good was Jesus And he volunteered to have bad things happen to him. And that's why we have Easter Sunday. Listen, Easter is telling us that the only way that we can be saved is by looking to the bloody, grotesque, sickening, nauseating Savior and not turn away in disgust, but looking upon him 
and worshiping. That's faith. Looking upon a disfigured, bloody Savior who looked like a piece of raw meat on the cross and worshiping him. Tendons exposed, blood everywhere, bone visible, coagulation, muscle, tissue, strips of skin hanging off his body, shredded to pieces, and looking at him and worshiping. Looking at him and saying, is that really a human being? That can't be. What is that thing on the cross? And then saying, that's my savior, my treasure. That's the one my soul loves. It sounds strange, but the repulsive, grotesque savior hanging on that cross is the one who will cleanse you from your sins. The sickening stench of a tender Savior baking in the hot sun covered in flies is what makes you clean. The coagulated blood sticking to sweaty, smelly, stinky human flesh is what washes away your sin. The one people stared at and asked, is that thing even human? He is the one who loved you and gave his life up for your sin. That's how much he loves you. That's how good he is. That's how merciful he is. That's how kind he is. In fact, this is how God has always provided for sinners. He can't stay away from a repentant sinner. God has always provided a way for people who say, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior. He's always provided a way for them to come close because Jesus just can't stay away from us. He can't stay away from his people. He can't get close enough. He desires fellowship with us. He always provides a way for sinners. Even after Adam and Eve sinned and they were hiding, what did he do? He took an animal and shed blood and covered their nakedness with the animal skins. So God has always used death. God has always used the D word to atone for sin. In the Old Testament, worship was bloody and gory because the way to peace with God centered around what is called substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? It simply means that something or someone dies in your place and sheds their blood in order to cover and wash away and forgive your sins. And so God's wrath against sin is appeased through substitutionary atonement as blood is shed. That means that worship in the Old Testament was bloody and, quite frankly, pretty gross. It was pretty nasty. As Old Testament scholar Ralph Davis says when he describes atonement, he says, readers should be aghast. The text says atonement is horrible. It is gory. Atonement is never nice but always gruesome. We need to see this for we easily fall into the trap of regarding atonement as merely a doctrine, a concept, an abstraction to be explained, a bit of theology to be analyzed. Or, little better, to view it as a moving story to be replayed during Passion Week. But we should know better. Surely the Israelite worshiper realized this when he towed a young bull to the tabernacle and had to slit its throat, skin it, cut it into pieces, and wash the insides and legs. Leviticus 1. It was all mess and gore. 
from slicing the bull's throat in Leviticus 1 all the way to Calvary, God has always said atonement is nasty and repulsive. Christians must beware of becoming too refined, longing for a kinder, gentler faith. If we've grown too used to Golgotha, perhaps God's word can shock us back into truth. Atonement is a drippy, bloody, smelly business. The stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. The way to God in the Old Testament is gory and horrible and gruesome and messy and nasty and repulsive and drippy and bloody and smelly. And it's the same in the New Testament. God doesn't change his standards. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is in the Bible, in the New Testament, to remind us that the way to God is gory and nasty and repulsive and drippy and bloody and smelly. The stench of the D word hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. And we must beware of becoming too refined. Like, I believe in Jesus. Would you please pass the biscuits? We must beware of becoming too refined and longing for a kinder, gentler faith. We must beware of believing the first lie. God won't judge you. You will not surely die. You will not experience the D word. Listen, the D word is at the center of our faith. And that's why we preach Christ crucified every single week. It's bloody. It's gross. It's nauseating. It's sickening. It will make your stomach churn. But it'll save you. It will make your stomach churn but it will cleanse you. And that's why we have a cross that is front and center in this church to remind us that Christianity involves the bloody death of Jesus, the D word. We've got the D word in the middle of our sanctuary. That's what we're about as a church. That's what Easter is about. And it's why the cross is central in this sanctuary because we need a weekly reminder right in front of our faces that we are in the business of death. We need a weekly reminder that this whole thing is riding on Jesus and not on us. That it's all about his death for us. And so that cross should make your heart leap every week as you walk into this room. That cross should remind you that You belong to Jesus. You've been united in a death like his, and therefore you will be united in a resurrection like his too. And so this sign, the cross, screams at us every time we walk into the sanctuary that we have been united to Jesus, that we are in union with him. Now, don't miss what Paul says in verse 21. Look there again. It says, in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him, that's union with Christ language. We become as righteous in God's eyes as Jesus is. In justification, we're declared righteous by God himself for Christ's sake, through faith. So the whole point of justification is that Jesus takes our sins unto himself and in the process gives us his righteousness, his perfection. And then... With the eyes of faith, we look upon the bloody, crucified Savior of verse 21. And what happens? Worship. 
What do you do with verse 21? One of the most eerie, spine-tingling verses in the Bible. What do you do with verse 21? One of the most offensive verses in the Bible. You just receive it. You believe it. You worship the God of 2 Corinthians 5.21. What can you say about this eternal plan that includes the God of the universe sending his one and only son to die for his enemies? The only response is worship. It's awe. It's wonder. It's this holy kind of flabbergastedness. For me? That's what Jesus' death and that's what the D word should lead us to. The praise of his glorious grace that he doesn't give us what we deserve. It should lead us to worship. But it doesn't end with Jesus' death. Our, we know our story doesn't end in verse 21. There's more to this story. We worship a risen Savior back from the dead. And that means that the D word does not get the last word. Death does not get the last word for those who trust in Jesus because through his gruesome death, Jesus defeated death. And death does not get the last word in verse 21 either. The Easter story does not end with 2 Corinthians 5.21. In fact, Paul will go on to allude to the resurrection in the opening verses of chapter 6. We don't have time to look at it today. I wanted to, but this sermon was getting too long, and so I had to like cut it in half. So we're going to postpone that for next week. But I think Paul's alluding to the resurrection in the opening verses of chapter 6. But death does not get the last word in verse 21 because we're heading into chapter 6. The Easter story doesn't end in verse 21. The gospel does not end with God for our sake, making him to be sin who knew no sin. The death of Jesus is not the end of the line. The D word does not get the last word. The R word gets the last word. Resurrection gets the last word. So we've come out of the darkness now into the light. Don't appreciate the light until you see how dark it was, right? You don't appreciate the light and the glory of Easter morning until you've gone through the darkness of Friday and Saturday. The resurrection of Jesus means that Jesus beat the living daylights out of death. I love that. He's like, come here, death. And there's no referee to interrupt and say, it's over. The round's over. No. He beat the tar out of death. And that means that Jesus has big plans for you. Jesus has big plans for your body, the body you're in right now. He is planning on resurrecting you and giving you a brand new body. I think we're just too familiar with the idea of resurrection too. We've just grown comfortable with the idea that, number one, Jesus died for our sins. Yes, I know that. And two, that he came back from the dead. I'm familiar with that idea. Pass the biscuits. The shock seems to have worn off. I'm afraid we Christians have just got so used to the idea of resurrection that it doesn't startle us anymore. He came back from the dead. We worship a guy who came back from the dead. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? You tell your friends that. You want an opportunity to share the gospel? Go up to your friends tomorrow at work and say, I'll worship a guy who came back from the dead. You want to talk about it? There you go. He came back from the dead, and we're coming back from the dead. You want to start a conversation with a coworker tomorrow? 
go up and say, you know what? I'm coming back from the dead. <laughs> There's your gospel opportunity that you've been praying about. Jesus is like, let me throw you a softball, son. There you go. We're going to come crawling out of our graves. Not like zombies in Michael Jackson thriller video, but we're going to come out brand new, glorious. So don't let resurrection become old hat to you this Easter. Marvel anew that you will be made new. Come believing with the empty hands of faith. You bring the empty hands of faith and Jesus brings the empty tomb. That's how it works. You say, oh, I have nothing. And Jesus says, great, I've got an empty tomb and it's all yours. And then one day, we'll wake up from this dream, from this nightmare. That's Easter. That's resurrection. One glorious day, waking up from the nightmare. One day, we'll experience the pleasure of having woken up from this nightmare, from living in a curse-filled, death-infested world that Adam ushered in through his sin. And that's the hope of Christianity. One day, Jesus returns, and when he comes back again... He's got one thing on his agenda. It says, go on a resurrection spree. And that's what he's going to do. He's just going to go on a resurrection spree when he comes back. And we will wake up from this nightmare to experience pleasures forevermore. And you can have this hope too. Your heart can leap like those children at Narnia. And a wild hope can rise up in your heart and take over. And that wild hope rising up in your heart is available for you too. You can go to Narnia too. All you have to do is open up your hands and repent and admit that you need a Savior. You just cry out, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. And he will. He will. He will. He'll be merciful to you. Why would you refuse a God who loves you so much? What do you have against him? What's he ever done against you? He gave up his son for all the bad stuff you do. His son took the blame. All you got to do is come and say, you be merciful to me, Jesus. And he's like, oh, this is the best day. That's what he'll say. Of course I will. He will. C.S. Lewis ends the last battle with these words. And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us... This is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Everything that we experience in this life, all the pain, the cancer, the loss of loved ones, the loss of pets, losing jobs, friendships, all the suffering, all that we experience here in the shadow lands, even the good that we experience, the friendships, the joy, all of that, it's just the cover and the title page. 
So hope in God this morning because he's coming again. No more sin, no more pain. Chapter one will start for us when Jesus returns and every chapter will be better than the last. Every day will be better than the than the last. And so we'll get to the end of the 10,345th day and say, gosh, I thought all those other 10,344 were like the apex and the pinnacle, but 10,345th day was better than all the others. And then somebody will probably punch us and say, hey, dummy, tomorrow's going to be better. Have you not figured it out yet? Every day will just get better and better and better. Chapter 1 will start for you, Christian, when Jesus raises you up from death and you come out of the grave. And that's why the D word does not get the last word. Because chapter 1 of this incredible adventure awaits us. Every chapter will be better than the last. Better than the last. And so Jesus will show up on that glorious day and take you by the hand and he'll say to you, wait until you see what I've got in store for you. Wait until you see what I have prepared for you. You're going to love it. And he's going to put his arm around you and he's going to fling his arm out and say, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. And we're going to be like, I don't think I belong here. This for me, but what about my sin? I don't remember any sins, but I'm just, this is all yours. This is all yours. Go enjoy it. And we will. We will enjoy it. We will. We will. We will. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for all that you've done for us. We are humbled. I don't, I don't understand. But I believe it doesn't make sense to me that you would be this kind and gentle to sinners. To be willing to take our blame. To volunteer for it. I don't understand. I don't have a category for that. But I believe believe it because your word says so because your spirit has spoken to my heart and reassured me that I am your child Lord we just don't understand we are just in awe and flabbergasted this morning and we just worship you we just worship you Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your mercy and your grace and your kindness, Lord. If there's someone here today who just still doesn't believe, Lord, would your spirit work in their heart now? May they cry out to you for mercy. Oh, Lord, but for your children who are here today, Lord, may we stand and sing about your glorious work. Jesus, may we sing about how you became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in you. And then may you get all the glory. In your name we pray, amen.